Book the Last, Chapter 3, Part 2 of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Bynum. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Chapter 3, Part 2. "'I might introduce you to all sorts of other contrivances of the same kind,' he resumed, leading the way downstairs. "'But it would only be the same thing over and over again. "'A nervous patient who always has his own way is a nervous patient who is never worried, "'and a nervous patient who is never worried is a nervous patient cured. "'There it is in a nutshell. "'Come and see the dispensary, ladies. "'The dispensary and the kitchen next.' "'Once more Miss Gwilt dropped behind the visitors and waited alone looking steadfastly at the room which the doctor had opened, and at the apparatus which the doctor had unlocked. Again, without a word, passing between them, she had understood him. She knew as well as if he had confessed it that he was craftily putting the necessary temptation in her way, before witnesses who could speak to the superficially innocent acts which they had seen, if anything serious happened. The apparatus, originally constructed to serve the purpose of the doctor's medical crochets, was evidently to be put to some other use, of which the doctor himself had probably never dreamed till now, and the chances were that before the day was over that other use would be privately revealed to her at the right moment, in the presence of the right witness. "'Armadale will die this time,' she said to herself, as she went slowly down the stairs. "'The doctor will kill him, by my hands.' The visitors were in the dispensary when she joined them. All the ladies were admiring the beauty of the antique cabinet, and as a necessary consequence all the ladies were desirous of seeing what was inside. The doctor, after a preliminary look at Miss Gwilt, good-humoredly shook his head. "'There is nothing to interest you inside,' he said. "'Nothing but rows of little shabby bottles containing the poisons used in medicine which I keep under lock and key.' "'Come to the kitchen, ladies, and honor me with your advice on domestic matters below stairs.' He glanced again at Miss Gwilt as the company crossed the hall with a look which said plainly, "'Wait here.' In another quarter of an hour the doctor had expounded his views on cookery and diet, and the visitors, duly furnished with prospectuses, were taking leave of him at the door. "'Quite an intellectual treat,' they said to each other as they streamed out again in neatly dressed procession through the iron gates, and what a very superior man! The doctor turned back to the dispensary, humming absently to himself, and failing entirely to observe the corner of the hall in which Miss Gwilt stood retired. After an instant's hesitation she followed him. The assistant was in the room when she entered it, summoned by his employer the moment before. "'Doctor,' she said coldly and mechanically, as if she was repeating a lesson, I am as curious as the other ladies about that pretty cabinet of yours. Now they are all gone, won't you show the inside of it to me?" The doctor laughed in his pleasantest manner. The old story, he said, Bluebeard's locked chamber and female curiosity. Don't go, Benjamin, don't go. My dear lady, what interest can you possibly have in looking at a medical bottle, simply because it happens to be a bottle of poison? She repeated her lesson for the second time. I have the interest of looking at it, she said, and of thinking, if it got into some people's hands, of the terrible things it might do. The doctor glanced at his assistant with a compassionate smile. Curious, Benjamin, he said, the romantic view taken of these drugs of ours by the unscientific mind. 
"'My dear lady,' he added, turning to Miss Gwilt, "'if that is the interest you attach to looking at poisons, "'you needn't ask me to unlock my cabinet. "'You need only look about you round the shelves of this room. "'There are all sorts of medical liquids and substances in those bottles, "'most innocent, most useful in themselves, "'which in combination with other substances and other liquids "'become poisons as terrible and as deadly as any I have in my cabinet under lock and key.' She looked at him for a moment and crossed to the opposite side of the room. "'Show me one,' she said. Still smiling as good-humouredly as ever, the doctor humoured his nervous patient. He pointed to the bottle from which he had privately removed the yellow liquid on the previous day, and which he had filled up again with a carefully coloured imitation in the shape of a mixture of his own. "'Do you see that bottle?' he said. "'That plump, round, comfortable-looking bottle? Never mind the name of what is beside it.' Let us stick to the bottle, and distinguish it, if you like, by giving it a name of our own. Suppose we call it our stout friend. Very good. Our stout friend, by himself, is a most harmless and useful medicine. He is freely dispensed every day to tens of thousands of patients all over the civilized world. He has made no romantic appearances in courts of law. He has excited no breathless interest in novels. He has played no terrifying part on the stage. There he is, an innocent, inoffensive creature who troubles nobody with the responsibility of locking him up. But, bring him into contact with something else, introduce him to the acquaintance of a certain common mineral substance, of a universally accessible kind broken into fragments, provide yourself with, say, six doses of our stout friend, and pour those doses consecutively on the fragments I have mentioned, at intervals of not less than five minutes. Quantities of little bubbles will rise at every pouring. Collect the gas in those bubbles and convey it into a closed chamber, and let Samson himself be in that closed chamber. Our stout friend will kill him in half an hour. We'll kill him slowly, without his seeing anything, without his smelling anything, without his feeling anything but sleepiness. We'll kill him, and tell the whole college of surgeons nothing if they examine him after death but that he died of apoplexy or congestion of the lungs. What do you think of that, my dear lady, in the way of mystery and romance? Is our harmless stout friend as interesting now as if he rejoiced in the terrible popular fame of the arsenic and the strychnine which I keep locked up there? Don't suppose I am exaggerating. Don't suppose I am inventing a story to put you off with, as the children say. Ask Benjamin there, said the doctor, appealing to his assistant with his eyes fixed on Miss Gwilt. Ask Benjamin, he repeated, with the steadiest emphasis on the next words, if six doses from that bottle, at intervals of five minutes each, would not, under the conditions I have stated, produce the results I have described. The resident dispenser, modestly admiring Miss Gwilt at a distance, started and colored up. He was plainly gratified by the little attention which had included him in the conversation. The doctor is quite right, ma'am, he said, addressing Miss Gwilt with his best bow. The production of the gas, extended over half an hour, would be quite gradual enough. And, added the dispenser, silently appealing to his employer to let him exhibit a little chemical knowledge on his own account, the volume of the gas would be sufficient at the end of the time, if I am not mistaken, sir, to be fatal to any person entering the room in less than five minutes. Unquestionably, Benjamin, rejoined the doctor, but I think we have had enough of chemistry for the present, he added, turning to Miss Gwilt. With every desire, my dear lady, to gratify every passing wish you may form, I venture to propose trying a more cheerful subject. 
Suppose we leave the dispensary before it suggests any more inquiries to that active mind of yours. No? You want to see an experiment? You want to see how the little bubbles are made? Well, well, there is no harm in that. We will let Mrs. Armadale see the bubbles, continued the doctor, in the tone of apparent humor in a spoiled child. Try, if you can, find a few of those fragments we want, Benjamin. I dare say the workmen, slovenly fellows, have left something of the sort about the house or the grounds. The resident dispenser left the room. As soon as his back was turned, the doctor began opening and shutting drawers in various parts of the dispensary, with the air of a man who wants something in a hurry and does not know where to find it. "'Bless my soul!' he exclaimed, suddenly stopping at the drawer from which he had taken his cards of invitation on the previous day. "'What's this? A key? A duplicate key, as I'm alive, of my fumigating apparatus upstairs.' "'Oh, dear, dear, how careless I get!' said the doctor, turning round briskly to Miss Gwilt. "'I hadn't the least idea that I possessed this second key. I should never have missed it. I do assure you I should never have missed it if anybody had taken it out of the drawer.' He bustled away to the other end of the room, without closing the drawer, and without taking away the duplicate key. In silence Miss Gwilt listened till he had done. In silence she glided to the drawer. In silence she took the key, and hid it in her apron pocket. The dispenser came back with the fragments required of him, collected in a basin. "'Thank you, Benjamin,' said the doctor. "'Kindly cover them with water while I get the bottle down.' As accidents sometimes happen in the most perfectly regulated families, so clumsiness sometimes possesses itself of the most perfectly disciplined hands. In the process of its transfer from the shelf to the doctor, the bottle slipped and fell smashed to pieces on the floor. "'Oh, my fingers and thumbs!' cried the doctor, with an air of comic vexation. "'What in the world do you mean by playing me such a wicked trick as that?' "'Well, well, well, it can't be helped.' "'Have we got any more of it, Benjamin?' "'Not a drop, sir.' "'Not a drop,' echoed the doctor. "'My dear madam, what excuses can I offer you? "'My clumsiness has made our little experiment impossible for to-day. "'Remind me to order some more to-morrow, Benjamin, "'and don't think of troubling yourself to put that mess to rights. "'I'll send the man here to mop it all up. "'Our stout friend is harmless enough now, my dear lady, "'in combination with a boarded floor and a coming mop.' I'm so sorry. I really am so sorry to have disappointed you. With those soothing words, he offered his arm and led Miss Gwilt out of the dispensary. Have you done with me for the present? she asked when they were in the hall. Oh, dear, dear, what a way of putting it, exclaimed the doctor. Dinner at six, he added with his politest emphasis, as she turned from him in disdainful silence and slowly mounted the stairs to her own room. A clock of the noiseless sort, incapable of offending irritable nerves, was fixed in the wall above the first-floor landing at the sanitarium. At the moment when the hands pointed to a quarter before six, the silence of the lonely upper regions was softly broken by the rustling of Miss Gwilt's dress. She advanced along the corridor of the first floor, paused at the covered apparatus fixed outside the room numbered four, listened for a moment, and then unlocked the cover with the duplicate key. The open lid cast a shadow over the inside of the casing. All she saw at first was what she had seen already, the jar and the pipe and glass funnel inserted in the cork. She removed the funnel, and looking about her, observed on the window-sill close by a wax-tipped wand used for lighting the gas. 
She took the wand, and introducing it through the aperture occupied by the funnel, moved it to and fro in the jar. The faint splash of some liquid, and the grating noise of certain hard substances, which she was stirring about, were the two sounds that caught her ear. She drew out the wand, and cautiously touched the wet left on it with the tip of her tongue. Caution was quite needless in this case. The liquid was water. In putting the funnel back in its place, she noticed something faintly shining in the obscurely lit vacant space at the side of the jar. She drew it out and produced a purple flask. The liquid with which it was filled showed dark through the transparent coloring of the glass, and fastened at regular intervals down one side of the flask were six thin strips of paper which divided the contents into six equal parts. There was no doubt now that the apparatus had been secretly prepared for her. The apparatus of which she alone, besides the doctor, possessed the key. She put back the flask and locked the cover of the casing. For a moment she stood looking at it with the key in her hand. On a sudden her lost color came back. On a sudden its natural animation returned for the first time that day to her face. She turned and hurried breathlessly upstairs to her room on the second floor. With eager hands she snatched her cloak out of the wardrobe and took her bonnet from the box. "'I'm not in prison,' she burst out impetuously. "'I've got the use of my limbs. I can go, no matter where, as long as I am out of this house.' With her cloak on her shoulders and her bonnet in her hand she crossed the room to the door. A moment more and she would have been out in the passage. In that moment the remembrance flashed back on her of the husband whom she had denied to his face. She stopped instantly, and threw the cloak and bonnet from her on the bed. No, she said, the gulf is dug between us, the worst is done. There was a knock at the door. The doctor's voice outside politely reminded her that it was six o'clock. She opened the door and stopped him on his way downstairs. What time is the train due to-night? she asked in a whisper. At ten, answered the doctor in a voice which all the world might hear and welcome. What room is Mr. Armadale to have when he comes? What room would you like him to have? Number four. The doctor kept up appearances to the very last. Number four let it be, he said graciously, provided, of course, that number four is unoccupied at the time. The evening wore on, and the night came. At a few minutes before ten, Mr. Bashwood was again at his post, once more on the watch for the coming of the tidal train. The inspector on duty, who knew him by sight, and who had personally ascertained that his regular attendance at the terminus implied no designs on the purses and portmanteaus of the passengers, noticed two new circumstances in connection with Mr. Bashwood that night. In the first place, instead of exhibiting his customary cheerfulness, he looked anxious and depressed. In the second place, while he was watching for the train, he was to all appearance being watched in his turn by a slim, dark, undersized man who had left his luggage, marked with the name of Midwinter, at the custom-house department the evening before, and who had returned to have it examined about half an hour since. What had brought Midwinter to the terminus? And why was he, too, waiting for the tidal train? After straying as far as Hendon during his lonely walk of the previous night, he had taken refuge at the village inn, and had fallen asleep from sheer exhaustion towards those later hours of the morning which were the hours that his wife's foresight had turned to account. When he returned to the lodging, the landlady could only inform him that her tenant had settled everything with her and had left, 
for what destination neither she nor her servant could tell more than two hours since. Having given some little time to inquiries, the result of which convinced him that the clue was lost so far, Midwinter had quitted the house and had pursued his way mechanically to the busier and more central parts of the metropolis. With the light now thrown on his wife's character, to call at the address she had given him as the address at which her mother lived would be plainly useless. He went on through the streets, resolute to discover her, and trying vainly to see the means to his end, till the sense of fatigue forced itself on him once more. Stopping to rest and recruit his strength at the first hotel he came to, a chance dispute between the waiter and a stranger about a lost portmanteau reminded him of his own luggage left at the terminus, and instantly took his mind back to the circumstances under which he and Mr. Bashwood had met. In a moment more, the idea that he had been vainly seeking on his way through the streets flashed on him. In a moment more he had determined to try the chance of finding the steward again on the watch for the person whose arrival he had evidently expected by the previous evening's train. Ignorant of the report of Allan's death at sea, uninformed at the terrible interview with his wife of the purpose which her assumption of a widow's dress really had in view, Midwinter's first vague suspicions of her fidelity had now inevitably developed into the conviction that she was false. He could place but one interpretation on her open disavowal of him, and on her taking the name under which he had secretly married her. Her conduct forced the conclusion on him that she was engaged in some infamous intrigue, and that she had basely secured herself beforehand in the position of all others in which she knew it would be the most odious and most repellent to him to claim his authority over her. With that conviction he was now watching Mr. Bashwood. Firmly persuaded that his wife's hiding-place was known to the vile servant of his wife's vices, and darkly suspecting as the time wore on that the unknown man who had wronged him, and the unknown traveller for whose arrival the steward was waiting, were one and the same. The train was late that night, and the carriages were more than usually crowded when they arrived at last. Midwinter became involved in the confusion on the platform, and in the effort to extricate himself he lost sight of Mr. Bashwood for the first time. A lapse of some few minutes had passed before he again discovered the steward talking eagerly to a man in a loose shaggy coat whose back was turned toward him. Forgetful of all the cautions and restraints which he had imposed on himself before the train appeared, Midwinter instantly advanced on them. Mr. Bashwood saw his threatening face as he came on, and fell back in silence. The man in the loose coat turned to look where the steward was looking, and disclosed to Midwinter, in the full light of the station-lamp, Allan's face. For the moment they both stood speechless, hand in hand, looking at each other. Allan was the first to recover himself. "'Thank God for this,' he said fervently. "'I don't ask how you came here. It's enough for me that you have come. Miserable news has met me already, Midwinter.' Nobody but you can comfort me and help me to bear it. His voice faltered over those last words, and he said no more. The tone in which he had spoken roused Midwinter to meet the circumstances as they were, by appealing to the old grateful interest in his friend which had once been the foremost interest of his life. He mastered his personal misery for the first time since it had fallen on him, and gently taken Allan aside, asked what had happened. The answer, after informing him of his friend's reported death at sea, 
announced on Mr. Bashwood's authority that the news had reached Miss Milroy, and that the deplorable result of the shock thus inflicted had obliged the Major to place his daughter in the neighborhood of London under medical care. Before saying a word on his side, Midwinter looked distrustfully behind him. Mr. Bashwood had followed them. Mr. Bashwood was waiting to see what they did next. "'Was he waiting your arrival here to tell you this about Miss Milroy?' asked Midwinter, looking again from the steward to Allan. "'Yes,' said Allan. "'He has been kindly waiting here night after night to meet me and break the news to me.' Midwinter paused once more. The attempt to reconcile the conclusion he had drawn from his wife's conduct with the discovery that Allan was the man for whose arrival Mr. Bashwood had been waiting was hopeless. The one present chance of discovering a truer solution of the mystery was to press the steward on the one available point in which he had laid himself open to attack. He had positively denied on the previous evening that he knew anything of Allan's movements, or that he had any interest in Allan's return to England. Having detected Mr. Bashwood in one lie told to himself, Midwinter instantly suspected him of telling another to Allan. He seized the opportunity of sifting the statement about Miss Milroy on the spot. "'How have you become acquainted with this sad news?' he inquired, suddenly turning on Mr. Bashwood. "'Through the Major, of course,' said Allan, before the steward could answer. "'Who is the doctor who has the care of Miss Milroy?' persisted Midwinter, still addressing Mr. Bashwood. For the second time the steward made no reply. For the second time Allan answered for him. "'He is a man with a foreign name,' said Allan. He keeps a sanitarium near Hampstead. What did you say the name of the place was called, Mr. Bashwood? Fairweather Vale, sir, said the steward, answering his employer as a matter of necessity, but answering very unwillingly. The address of the sanitarium instantly reminded Midwinter that he had traced his wife to Fairweather Vale Villas the previous night. He began to see light through the darkness dimly for the first time. The instinct which comes with emergency before the slower process of reason can assert itself brought him at a leap to the conclusion that Mr. Bashwood, who had been certainly acting under his wife's influence the previous day, might be acting again under his wife's influence now. He persisted in sifting the steward's statement, with the conviction growing firmer and firmer in his mind that the statement was a lie and that his wife was concerned in it. "'Is the Major in Norfolk?' he asked or is he near his daughter in London? In Norfolk, said Mr. Bashwood. Having answered Allan's look of inquiry, instead of Midwinter's spoken question in those words, he hesitated, looked Midwinter in the face for the first time, and added suddenly, I object, if you please, to be cross-examined, sir. I know what I have told Mr. Armadale, and I know no more. The words and the voice in which they were spoken were alike at variance with Mr. Bashwood's usual language and Mr. Bashwood's usual tone. There was a sullen depression in his face. There was a furtive distrust and dislike in his eyes when they looked at Midwinter, which Midwinter himself now noticed for the first time. Before he could answer the steward's extraordinary outbreak, Allan interfered. "'Don't think me impatient,' he said, "'but it's getting late. It's a long way to Hampstead. I'm afraid the sanitarium will be shut up.' Midwinter started. "'You're not going to the sanitarium tonight!' he exclaimed." Allan took his friend's hand and wrung it hard. "'If you were as fond of her as I am,' he whispered, "'you would take no rest. You could get no sleep till you had seen the doctor and heard the best and the worst he had to tell you. Poor dear little soul! Who knows if she could only see me alive and well?' The tears came into his eyes, and he turned away his head in silence. 
Midwinter looked at the steward. "'Stand back,' he said. "'I want to speak to Mr. Armadale.' There was something in his eye which it was not safe to trifle with. Mr. Bashwood drew back out of hearing, but not out of sight. Midwinter laid his hand fondly on his friend's shoulder. "'Allan,' he said, "'I have reasons—' He stopped. Could the reasons be given before he had fairly realized them himself, at that time too, and under those circumstances? Impossible. I have reasons, he resumed, for advising you not to believe too readily what Mr. Bashwood may say. Don't tell him this, but take the warning. Allan looked at his friend in astonishment. It was you who always liked Mr. Bashwood, he exclaimed. It was you who trusted him when he first came to the great house. Perhaps I was wrong, Allan, and perhaps you were right. Will you only wait till we can telegraph to Major Milroy and get his answer? Will you only wait over the night? I shall go mad if I wait over the night, said Allan. You have made me more anxious than I was before. If I am not to speak about it to Bashwood, I must and will go to the sanitarium and find out whether she is or is not there from the doctor himself. Midwinter saw that it was useless. In Allan's interest there was only one other course left to take. Will you let me go with you? he asked. Allan's face brightened for the first time. You dear good fellow, he exclaimed. It was the very thing I was going to beg of you myself. Midwinter beckoned to the steward. Mr. Armadale is going to the sanitarium, he said, and I mean to accompany him. Get a cab and come with us. He waited to see whether Mr. Bashwood would comply. Having been strictly ordered, when Allan did arrive, not to lose sight of him, and having in his own interest Midwinter's unexpected appearance to explain to Miss Gwilt, the steward had no choice but to comply. In sullen submission he did as he had been told. The keys of Allan's baggage was given to the foreign traveling servant whom he had brought with him, and the man was instructed to wait his master's orders at the Terminus Hotel. In a minute more the cab was on its way out of the station, with Midwinter and Allan inside, and Mr. Bashwood by the driver on the box. Between eleven and twelve o'clock that night, Miss Gwilt, standing alone at the window which lit the corridor of the sanitarium on the second floor, heard the roll of wheels coming toward her. The sound, gathering rapidly in volume through the silence of the lonely neighborhood, stopped at the iron gates. In another minute she saw the cab draw up beneath her at the house door. The earlier night had been cloudy, but the sky was clearing now, and the moon was out. She opened the window to see and hear more clearly. By the light of the moon she saw Allan get out of the cab and turn round to speak to some other person inside. The answering voice told her, before he appeared in his turn, that Armadale's companion was her husband. The same petrifying influence that had fallen on her at the interview with him of the previous day fell on her now. She stood by the window, white and still, and haggard and old, as she had stood when she first faced him in her widow's weeds. Mr. Bashwood, stealing up alone to the second floor to make his report, knew the instant he set eyes on her that the report was needless. "'It's not my fault,' was all he said, as she slowly turned her head and looked at him. They met together, and there was no parting them. She drew a long breath and motioned him to be silent. "'Wait a little,' she said. "'I know all about it. Turning from him at those words, she slowly paced the corridor to its furthest end, turned, and slowly came back to him with frowning brow and drooping head, with all the grace and beauty gone from her, but the inbred grace and beauty in the movement of her limbs. 
End of Book the Last, Chapter 3, Part 2